This podcast is a part of Sphera, a collective of independent media outlets from across Europe. For more information, visit sphera-hub.com. Hi, Katie. Hello. I'm speaking to you from a new recording situation. I don't think it's quite grand enough to call it a, a recording studio because it is my cupboard. But it's definitely an upgrade from my previous setup. And I'm hoping it's going to mean that my voice sounds beautifully clear and rounded. The thing I'm a bit worried about, though, because I've seen your cupboard in a video call, it doesn't seem to have any air holes. You're going to be all right in there. I hope so. But if I um, pass out, then will you like call some assistance? If there's any long silences, I'll call the ambulance. Anyway, you've been at a tech conference. How was it? Yeah, it was really fun. I went to Lisbon for the week. And probably the funnest thing was that I met up with Andre Degler from the Tech EU podcast, who we had on as a guest earlier this year. And he took me to an extremely fun Ukrainian party. That sounds amazing. I mean, this is not going to come as a surprise to lots of people because I think it's quite well known. But uh, let's just say the Ukrainians know how to party. And I had quite a sore head the next day. Oh, dear. What have we got coming up this week? Well, for the next two weeks, we've got a bit of a theme. We're going to be having conversations about the external borders of the European Union. So the borders at the edge of the Union in places like Greece or Latvia or Hungary. And this week, you've probably seen in the news that there's been a pretty terrible escalation at the border of Belarus and Poland. It's a crisis that's been going on for a while now, but it's really coming to a head this week. So we really thought we had to talk about it. And we found someone to talk to who's really been seeing with her own eyes what's been happening there. Marta Kwaczynska, a lawyer who's been trying to help these migrants who are in a terrible situation. That's coming up later in the show. But first, it's time for Good Week, Bad Week. Who's had a bad week, Katie? Well, I may regret talking about this because it's exactly the kind of thing that no matter how I talk about it, someone is going to tell me I've got it all wrong. Uh, But I'm going to try anyway. I'm going to give bad week to the Council of Europe. Which of the many European councils is that? Yeah. (laughs) As a lot of listeners will know, there are about nine things in Europe called like the Council of Europe or the European Council or the Council of the EU. Uh, The one that we're talking about today is the Council of Europe. It's not actually part of the EU. It's a human rights organisation. It's basically this big club of like 47 countries who've all agreed to respect human rights. And they're very big into like promoting good democratic standards. Anyway, as part of this general mission, the Council of Europe launched a campaign on social media last week aimed at trying to combat Islamophobia and stand up for women who wear the hijab, women who face a lot of discrimination on this continent. The social media campaign included these images of smiling Muslim women wearing headscarves and also these images where the photo was kind of split in half and each half was like, one woman wearing a hijab and on the other side there was a woman not wearing a hijab and the slogan read beauty is in diversity as freedom is in hijab now 
I think we can all agree that is like a horribly clunky slogan. Like it doesn't really make any sense. It's a bit confusing. It is a bit confusing. Like, what does it mean? I've no idea, really. But suffice to say, some people really, really didn't like this expression, freedom is in hijab. And they accused this campaign of promoting the hijab and saying that this was essentially pro-Islamic propaganda. Now, this is where it becomes hard to talk about because a lot of people taking issue with this campaign, it wasn't really just about the wording in this clunky phrase. They were also taking issue with the general premise that we should respect the choice of women who want to wear a hijab. And the more hardline of these tweets said things like, I mean, I kind of feel a bit gross even repeating this on the podcast, but stuff like, you know, if you want to wear a headscarf, why don't you go live with the Taliban? That kind of thing. I know there's a lot of Islamophobia in the country you live in, in France, um, where a lot of those tweets coming from French Twitter users, perchance? What on earth would make you think that, Dominic? Uh, Yeah, not all of them, but a lot of these tweets did come from people in France. And in fact, that is why the Council of Europe has now withdrawn this pro-diversity campaign, because several well-known French politicians were among the people complaining. People like Marine Le Pen, surprise, surprise, the French far-right leader said this campaign was indecent, and that it was in removing the veil that women become free. But it wasn't just people on the far right saying this kind of thing in France. The entire French government wasn't happy about this. And apparently, with the support of the German government, they pressured the Council of Europe to withdraw these images. And so the Council of Europe has deleted all of these social media posts. And it is apparently now trying to, I quote, reflect on a better presentation of this project. I appreciate that this is quite a complicated question. But why do you think people get so riled up? about this thing in France? I mean, how long have you got? We could talk about this for hours. Um, If you ask French people who are very outspokenly anti-hijab, to the point of what some people, including me, would see as Islamophobic, if you ask these people why they think and talk this way, they will often talk about laïcité, this idea of secularism that's really important in France, right? Mm. Uh, This idea that religion should not have a role in public life. And that walking around in a hijab is too public a marker of your religion. Uh, Curiously, we don't seem to be having the same conversation about like Jewish men or Sikh men who wear visible symbols of their religions. It is really mostly Muslim women who get this criticism. But that's by the by. Um, People who make this argument and they come from the left and the right in France, they'll also often give you this line about how women who wear the hijab are oppressed and they couldn't possibly be wearing a headscarf out of choice which, I don't know, personally, I find that a bit patronising because if you ask women themselves, they might have any number of reasons for wearing a piece of clothing. And I think that we should treat all women as intelligent enough to make their own decisions about their clothes. Uh, I also personally feel okay with this idea that women might have different ideas about how they feel comfortable dressed in public culturally, you know, and different ideas of modesty. Uh, Many women in many European countries, including this one, used to cover their hair all the time out of modesty until like the 60s. I suspect, and I think I might get in trouble for saying this, but I do also think that this mainstream abhorrence of women who prefer to be a bit more covered up does also have something to do with the way that French culture has traditionally celebrated sex and seduction and this idea of women being able to show off their bodies as a right that's seen as great and it's encouraged. And just to be clear, I also think it's great. And I think, you know, everyone should be able to sunbathe topless and, and be sexy in whatever way they want to be sexy. But 
I also think it shouldn't be a problem if individual women don't want to do that. I mean, the idea that some women are made to wear a headscarf or or a face covering in some parts of the world, that's not just been picked out of thin air. Like There are some situations in which that is the case, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. That is probably one of the reasons why there's more of a focus on it and a reaction against it than, as you say, other religious symbols. Yeah, and I think definitely things like the return of the Taliban to Afghanistan, it's horrific and that's definitely informed these conversations. But I don't think we should make an assumption about people. And I generally just don't think we should tell women in a democratic country like this one how to dress. Like, it's such an obsession. Do you think it's also a particularly big deal in France because France has, like, this big push for people to assimilate into French culture. Yeah, I do think it has something to do with that. Um, If you read these angry tweets about this campaign, a lot of them say stuff like, people who live here should assimilate with our values. And the people who tell you that kind of thing, they think of themselves as proud secularists and enlightened defenders of women's rights. And those are very good things to be. But when I hear people kind of suggesting that French women who wear a hijab are somehow a little bit less French because of these clothes, it it makes me feel really uneasy, you know, because a lot of these women were born here. Their parents were born here. They're as French as anyone else. And again, I feel like I'm probably going to get into trouble for saying this, but I am a citizen in this country now, so I feel like I have the right to give my opinion. The people who won't accept these women, they have a quite narrow image in their mind of what it means to be French. And it's a very white-centric image of what it means to be French. So it's really easy and comfortable, you know, if you've grown up in a white, culturally Christian environment, because this whole culture is designed around people like you, you know? And there's a lot of hypocrisy built into it. So, for example, we supposedly live in this country where everything's very neutral and religion is totally separate from public life. And yet there's a bunch of elements of public life that are derived from Christianity, Things like our public holidays, they're mostly Catholic holidays. Kids eat fish in school on Fridays, which is a Catholic thing. And lots of people will say, oh, you know, that's not a religious thing. That's just French culture. But what I'm trying to say is that it doesn't feel like everyone gets an equal say over what French culture is. And even though France is home to the largest Muslim minority in Europe, it really doesn't feel like Muslim women in particular are allowed to have much of a role in saying what that culture should be or shaping it. So you've got a big election coming up next year in France. Mm -hmm. Is this topic already making an appearance in the long election campaign? Yeah, it is in very unpleasant ways. Um, Have you heard of a guy called Eric Zemmour? Yeah, I have. So for those of you who haven't, he is basically France's answer to Donald Trump. He casts himself as a kind of media commentator, but he is in fact a super far right hate mongerer He said things like, you know, you shouldn't have the right in France to name your kid Mohammed, this kind of thing. Zemmour hasn't even declared yet that he's running for the presidency, but he's already neck and neck with Le Pen in the polls. And he is just sucking up screen time in the French media like crazy in a way that I think is kind of just giving him a platform at this point. It's it's kind of irresponsible. Anyway, um, there was this horrific incident the other day on a channel called CNews, which is the French version of Fox News. And they showed Zimmour confronting this woman who was wearing a headscarf. And you see him haranguing this woman and telling her that she's not free unless she takes it off. And finally, she does take it off. And he says, voila, there you are. You're free now. 
weirdly in the end it turned out that this woman was planted by the tv station so this whole thing was staged just to whip up some controversy but i found it really difficult to watch this video of this woman being bullied into changing her clothes like this and i can't even imagine what it is like to be a woman in france who wears hijab right now i think this kind of treatment it's becoming normalized and i think we should call it what it is it's islamophobic and it's it's unacceptable and I'm giving the Council of Europe bad week this week because they were forced to take down this campaign. And I think they probably could have avoided it if it had been slightly better framed and didn't have this weird phrasing in it that really did make it sound a little bit like it was encouraging women to wear the hijab rather than saying that like we should just respect women's choices. But fundamentally, I think it's just been a bad week because this was a, a well-intentioned campaign. It was aimed at defending a group in our society who face a lot of discrimination and who get kind of othered all the time. And some internet warriors are now congratulating themselves for having had it taken down. But it doesn't really feel much like there's anything to celebrate. Katie, maybe it's worth like deactivating your Twitter account for just the next week. <laughs> so you don't have to read um, people coming back at you, attacking you. I'm looking forward to receiving everyone's messages. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Who's had a good week? It's been a good week for prosecutors in Calabria in Italy after they managed to secure convictions against 70 mobsters or associates of the hugely powerful mafia group, the Ndrangheta. We talked about this so-called maxi trial when it began in January this year. And you may remember that we warned that it was going to take many, many months to conclude. So here we are about nine months later with just the first results from this specially designed ex-call center that's turned into a courtroom. Oh, yeah. And it's being described as an early blow against this enormous organized crime group. 91 verdicts and sentences were handed out by the judge at the weekend and 70 of the defendants were convicted. So it's seen as an early victory in a process that will continue for many months to come with some 355 people being judged in all. Is there any reason why these gangsters got like tried before the other ones? Uh, yeah, so these 91 defendants had all opted for speedy trials which I can't help it by keep thinking of speedy boarding, like EasyJet, whenever I hear of it. <laughs> like they paid the extra, which, no, they didn't pay any extra. What it actually means is that they just had preliminary hearings that took place behind closed doors, and it all resulted in their sentences being cut by one third if they were convicted. Mm. And it's thought that many of the defendants in these cases, in the speedy cases, seemed to choose this route because they knew they were almost certainly going to be convicted and they decided to go for the route of lowest sentencing. I don't know how I feel about that. It's kind of a weird thing to, to do as a society, isn't it? To be like, yep, we know you extorted people and you're a really bad person, but because we're going to like, la, 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 rush this through, you can go to prison for less time. But I guess it is a pragmatic thing to do. Yeah, that's true. It's a complicated thing to do, but actually... Some of these people convicted are also then going to appear as witnesses for the prosecution. So they're basically turning on the organized crime group. Mm. So that's one of the reasons why they wanted to get their convictions out of the way quickly so they could then cooperate. And what kind of sentences are we talking about for these people? Uh, well, it varied a lot. About a third of those convicted received a sentence of a decade or more in jail. So quite significant sentences. A handful of them were actually sentenced to 20 years, including the right-hand man of the big boss guy of this branch of the crime group. 
21 people uh, in these speedy trials were actually acquitted, although the chief prosecutor pointed out that the acquitted people were minor players. That, that chief prosecutor guy, he's quite an interesting figure, isn't he? I mean, he's got an extremely dangerous job. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's this guy called Nicola Grateri, and he's pretty famous as an anti-mafia prosecutor. And due to his work trying to bring down this particular mafia, he's had to live under police protection for the past 30 years. So obviously, it's really good news for him personally and professionally. And he said that it had gone very well. But it's worth noting that some of the biggest names in the maxi trial didn't opt for these speedy trials. So there'll be some time before we hear about the fate of people such as the ex-senator Giancarlo Pitelli and also the head of this branch of the mafia family, who's a 67-year-old man called Luigi Mancuso, also known as The Uncle. It's kind of hard to believe that people actually have nicknames like that in the Mafia. Like, it's not just something from the movies. They're, like, leaning into the stereotypes, aren't they, with The Uncle. And rather dramatically, actually, his nephew, who's not called The Nephew, but I think he should be, he's actually (laughs) one of the people that was just prosecuted in these speedy trials, and he's turned against his uncle, and he's, like, the star witness against his uncle. That's a really risky thing for him to do but uh, it's a big coup for the prosecutors the defendants were convicted of quite a broad range of crimes things like money laundering illegal weapons possession attempted murder association with the mafia and drug dealing and that final crime is one that the Indrangheta are really well known for it's actually thought of that the majority of cocaine in Europe is actually arranged by the Indrangheta, Mm. which I find extraordinary for just like one organized crime group, although it is an enormous organized crime group with around 6,000 people involved. But it's also worth mentioning that even though this is a maxi trial, it's only looking at one branch of the crime group, the branch of the uncle Mancuso. And uh, they went for this branch partly because they are known to be a particularly violent branch with some pretty awful crimes. Anna Sergi, a professor of criminology who specialises in mafia organisations, was writing on Twitter about these initial convictions. And she said the most interesting thing was that it will give an idea for all the hundreds of lawyers working on this maxi trial of how the judging tribunal are behaving and what might come later in the higher stakes, longer trials. So for now, it's a good week for the prosecutors for hitting this first crucial blow to this enormous and deadly crime organisation. It's been a little while since we had the chance to thank the amazing people who keep this podcast running through their generous monthly donations, uh, which means that we have loads of new people to thank. Who are we thanking this week? We're thanking Nick Higgins, Tom Kvan, Yanis Scrables, Nina Svetelli, Finton, and also Liam Wyatt for increasing his pledge. Thank you all so much. We really couldn't do this without you. Please join them. Go on. You've been thinking about it. Why don't you take the plunge? Have they? It's as simple as heading to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. And you can just decide how much you want to donate each month to help keep this show in your ears. You'll make us very happy. Now's probably a good time to tell you that during my trip to Lisbon last week, 
I decided that we should probably open a podcasting studio there because it's really, really nice. And I was thinking like if we get enough donations, we could make that dream come true in maybe 50 years time. That would be wonderful. I'd love to live in a warmer climate than the horrible cold north of Europe. This episode is really part one of two episodes. Uh, if you're listening to this now, I think you're really going to want to listen to next week's episode two, because they both deal with the frankly shameful treatment of asylum seekers on EU borders. Right now, there is a humanitarian disaster unfolding on the edge of Europe. The government in Belarus has been encouraging people to travel to Belarus on tourist visas from countries that aren't safe, especially Syria and Iraq. But also there's people coming from African countries that are suffering from violent unrest like DR Congo. And once they arrive, Belarus has been sending these people across the borders that it shares with EU countries, Poland, Latvia and Lithuania. It is part of a political game that Belarus has been playing. The regime there is trying to punish the EU for the sanctions that were imposed after President Lukashenko fraudulently claimed to have won an election last year. And Belarus is doing that by using humans as a geopolitical weapon. It knows very well that the EU does not want asylum seekers arriving here, so Belarus has been sending asylum seekers. This situation has been going on for months, but it's really in the last few weeks that things have really become desperate. It's cold now, it's really cold. And what is happening is that Belarus is sending people across its border with Poland, and Poland is trying to send them back. It is this horrible form of ping pong, it's a trap. And people are getting stuck in the forest between Poland and Belarus, often for days in the freezing cold. At least 10 people that we know of have died already in this situation. We really felt like this was something that we needed to talk about. It is scandalous that more isn't being done to stop it. And it does feel like a situation that has been escalating in recent days. There have been videos posted online of people trying to get across this border in really large numbers, hundreds of people. So this week, we're going to talk to someone who understands both the situation on the ground and the legal situation around it. Marta Gorczynska is a lawyer specialising in migration, asylum and human trafficking. And she's been working closely with NGOs in the border zone to help the people arriving. I've seen some of the pretty awful videos of what's been going on at the border. And yeah, it seems like a completely desperate situation. You've been there yourself trying to provide assistance to the migrants stuck in this limbo. What's it like there? Like you're saying, it's absolutely awful and the situation is getting only worse. The temperatures are dropping right now. The winter is coming in Poland. We find people in worse and worse medical condition. People are uh, being diagnosed by medics with hypothermia, exhaustion. A lot of people haven't been eating uh, or drinking for days. They tell us that they've been eating leaves or grass or drinking dirty water from some small ponds that they found on the way in the forest. The problem is that we don't exactly know how many people are there in this forest and no humanitarian organizations were allowed access there. We find people in very critical condition, people that are being admitted to the hospitals, to the local hospitals, which are slowly getting overwhelmed because there is no additional support from the government, no assistance uh, provided to these people in the forest. So the situation is getting only worse. So I guess it's mostly falling to volunteers outside this kind of exclusion zone to help people. 
Do they have the resources that they need to do that? Absolutely not. And that's the whole tragedy of the situation. The only assistance that is uh, provided right now to these people is the assistance provided by the NGOs, independent activists, and by local people. So people who have no resources, no expertise on how to work in such a critical situation, in a situation of a humanitarian crisis. That's why we call the government to send the humanitarian organizations, the professional organizations who know how to to provide assistance, who know how to work with people in such a situation uh, of a, well, we can say of a disaster because the humanitarian crisis is quickly turning into humanitarian disaster with more and more people being trapped there. And so one of the reasons why local people have had to step in, if I understand it correctly, is because due to this state of emergency that the government brought in, the border zone, a big part of it actually isn't allowed to be accessed by media or aid workers, and only the people that actually live there are allowed to be there. And these locals have just found themselves with a humanitarian crisis on their doorsteps. How have the locals been responding to it? Obviously, it's very traumatizing for them. We see how many of them are going every day, every night to the forest to find people who need assistance to bring them hot soup or hot tea, blankets, sleeping bags, warm clothes. People who are being found in the forest are not prepared at all for such a journey. They're not well equipped, especially taking the temperatures that we're having right now. We had already nights with the temperatures below zero degrees, which means that you really have to have a professional equipment to survive in the forest. We know that a lot of them were tricked by Belarusian travel agencies or visa agencies. They were told that this is an easy and safe way to get to Europe. The people that we speak to tell us that they've been trying to use the legal ways to European Union to join their families and uh, they were denied visa one time after another. And that's why they, at some point, were so desperate that they decided to use the Belarusian route. They were absolutely not prepared for the journey. And that's why when local people find these people in this forest, most of them are just freezing cold. They're shivering. They haven't been eating for days. Right now, we see that this is not only tragedy of migrants. It's also the tragedy of local people. And it's also the tragedy of border guard officers, police officers, militaries who are being forced to throw the families through the barbed wires back to Belarus, who are forced to leave these families that they meet in the forest with no assistance. More and more people are being traumatized by this policy. Activists as well, we were absolutely not prepared for uh, providing this kind of assistance in the forest. Me personally, I'm a human rights lawyer. I was not trained on how to provide humanitarian assistance to people, on how to save people's lives. But this is the first thing that we have to do when we approach the group of people right now. Here in France, we've sometimes seen people prosecuted for helping migrants. Is is that the same situation in Poland? Provisions of the Polish law do not criminalize providing humanitarian assistance to people. But obviously, as in any other country, some other provisions regarding human trafficking, human smuggling might be used by the government well, to achieve a freezing effect, at least. We already have activists who are prosecuted for smuggling because they were apprehended by the border guards while having a family from Iraq 
in their car. So they were trying to take people from the border area to Warsaw, as far as I know. They wanted to give them shelter. They wanted to basically save them from what's happening there, save their lives. We will see what will be the outcome of the proceeding. But we are afraid right now that there might be more and more activists who will be prosecuted for helping. Is there any way you can see things getting better anytime soon? Um, I believe you're involved in an initiative that's trying to get people at a table together to come to a humanitarian consensus. Could you tell us a bit about that? We've been trying to convince the government that the humanitarian assistance is absolutely crucial right now and it should be sent right away. It's not happening still. What's even worse is that there is no extra support to local hospitals, to the border guard stations where a lot of migrants are being placed, to local authorities. There is a humanitarian disaster and no additional fundings for the areas that are affected so they would be able to buy this essential stuff that is needed right now. So all of this is done by private people, by local people, by some fundraising campaigns. So this is the first thing that we're saying, that the government has to admit that there is a humanitarian crisis apart from a political crisis. So we are also trying to mobilize the humanitarian actors who would go to the ground and work outside of the state of emergency zone. So it's pretty clear that the Polish state does not want to welcome these people arriving. What does international law say about what Polish border guards should be doing when confronted with people trying to cross into Poland? And how does that differ from what's actually happening? According to both national and international law, you cannot just simply return a person to another country without conducting proper examination of each individual case of a person to see if there might be any reasons for the person to not be returned or reasons to grant this person international protection if he or she faces persecutions in her own or his own country. So there might be a lot of reasons for people not to be returned to the country from which they came. So in order to assess their situation, there is no other way than to conduct a proper legal proceeding. And this is not what's happening. So we see groups of people coming to Poland, so crossing the border illegally from Belarus, and then being pushed back to Belarus without initiating these proceedings. And this is the main violation of the law that we are seeing at the border. This is an illegal pushback that is happening. This situation violates the prohibition of torture and inhuman treatment as well. Sending a person with no warm clothes, no medical assistance, no food and no proper shelter to the forest with the temperatures as we're having right now in Poland, it's clearly a violation of at least inhuman treatment, but it might also violate the prohibition of tortures. And the government absolutely ignores that, claiming that this is a hybrid war with Lukashenko and all these people are just weapons used uh, against Poland by the Belarusian regime. Even if we call the situation a hybrid war, well, these people that are stuck in this forest, that are trapped in this forest, are also the victims of this war. And they should be treated as such. And so where's the international community in all of this? I mean, and in particular, where's the EU? Has there been enough pressure on Poland to take a more humanitarian approach? 
we already have at least 10 confirmed deaths at the border. We know that there are more of them uh, that went unreported. We know that there will be more of them if the situation does not change. And we're absolutely shocked that there is no firm reaction from the European Union. Let's remember that the Polish-Belarusian border is also the external EU border, which means that it's not only Poland right now claiming to be defending the borders, it's also defending the borders of the European Union. So this crisis should be also addressed by the EU. And it's not happening and we don't see it coming. There is, in fact, a whole EU agency in charge of looking at Europe's external borders, Frontex, and this agency is, in fact, based in Poland. Its headquarters are in Warsaw. Are they really not anywhere to be seen in this situation? No. In order for Frontex to start operating at the border, they uh, have to be asked by the member state to come and help. There was no such request from Polish government. When asked by journalists why the Frontex was not requested to come to the Polish border, they simply said, we don't need them. Our troops are sufficient to address the situation. From the human rights perspective, it's a very difficult question to answer whether Frontex should be involved right now or not. Because, well, we know that Frontex is involved and was accused of being involved in illegal pushbacks at other European borders. But on the other hand, we see that the situation is getting only more dramatic. And we know that there are some complaint mechanisms that are in place once the Frontex is involved. And there are no such mechanisms right now. Next week, we're going to be looking much more closely at this phenomenon of pushbacks, asylum seekers being pushed back illegally from within EU territory when they might be trying to claim asylum. And we're going to be looking at the growing mountain of evidence that Frontex has in fact witnessed international law being broken in this way. We think it's a really important episode, so look out for that next week. In the meantime, uh, I think we could do with a bit of cheering up, don't you, Dominic? Definitely. It's isolation inspiration time. Do you remember a little thing called live music? Yeah, I went to my first concert this week. Oh, how was it? It was so lovely. Do you know what I've really missed? And it's going to sound really strange, but uh, Sticky Floors? Oh, I think we're thinking of different kinds of live music. I was in like a choral concert in a church where the floors were definitely not sticky. (laughs) I went to a punk gig. How are you and me friends? Sometimes I just don't know. I don't know. Anyway, if you also love live music... And you happen to live near Amsterdam or Lille, we've got a little surprise for you this week. Uh, Courtesy of our good friends at Live Europe, we've got some tickets to give away for two upcoming shows from some great European artists. Yes, we're launching a competition. We're going to be doing a few of these before the end of the year, so listen out to hear if your city is mentioned. But this week we're starting with the city of Lille, where we've got two pairs of tickets to give away for a gig from the Swedish post-punk band Viagra Boys at the cool venue of Leronef on the 23rd of November. Should we hear a bit of the Viagra Boys? Let's. I love songs about sports. I'm going to be singing that all week. Sports! 
We also have tickets to give away in my hometown of Amsterdam at Melkweg on the 18th of November when the amazing Swiss Sri Lankan R&B star Priya Ragu will be performing. That is what my friend Patrick would call a bum wiggler. Is your bum wiggling? No, I can't really move in the cupboard. (laughs) Would you like any of these tickets in Lille or Amsterdam? Or do you know someone who you think would? Then send them to our Instagram or Facebook page where you'll find a post about both artists. All you have to do is comment under the picture and we'll draw names out of the hat on the 15th of November. Live Europe run a bunch of amazing music venues around Europe, so you should check them out in general. And yeah, many thanks to them for the tickets. Time for a happy ending. I think we all deserve it this week. Katie, are you a fan of Fisherman's Friends? Oh, um, they're like really strong kind of cough sweets. Is that right? Yeah, they're these very strong menthol lozenges. And actually, in doing my research for this segment, I discovered that Emmanuel Macron is a big fan of them and always carries them in his pocket when he's on the campaign trail. (laughs) Did not know that. Basically, people often use them when they are losing their voice or have a sore throat. And uh, I, I personally quite like them. But they were invented in 1865 by a pharmacist called James Lofthouse, who was talking to three fishermen and they were trying to tell him about what had happened in the day and what they'd caught. And he could barely hear what they were saying because they'd all lost their voices due to the pretty awful conditions out at sea. He decided something needed to be done, so he invented a product using a mixture of licorice, menthol and eucalyptus that helped these fishermen get their voices back. Mm. The rest is history. The product is now sold in 70 countries around the world. They make 5 billion lozenges per year, and the business has stayed in the family. So as you might have imagined, the family have made a pretty penny selling these billions of lozenges. One of the descendants, who had made quite a bit of money from the family business, was Doreen Lofthouse. And she sadly died at the age of 91 earlier this year. But she was still living in Fleetwood on the east coast of England, where her ancestor, James Lofthouse, had lived and invented this lozenge over 150 years ago. Since the 90s, she had donated quite a bit of her money, some millions, to community projects in Fleetwood. So she was a very generous woman during her lifetime. But with her death came her most incredible gesture. She donated £41 million of her fortune to a charity that tries to improve facilities and amenities in her hometown in Fleetwood. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it is. And the town seemed to be totally amazed by it. Um, A member of the Fleetwood Town Council told the BBC that they were overwhelmed by the generosity, saying it's an unbelievable amount of money. She also went on to say that she hoped the foundation will work alongside the council to identify projects that will benefit the town for years to come. She wants a piece of that pie. Uh, But it's obviously a really game-changing amount of money for a town. So I thought Fleetwood and Doreen Lofthouse deserved this week's happy ending. I promise this segment wasn't sponsored by Fisherman's Friend. I just like the story. I am off to wiggle my bum to Priya Ragu and to shout about sports. Uh, while I'm doing that, you can find us on social media. Where can people find us? Yeah, head to our Instagram, which is at Europeans Podcast. 
Twitter at Europeans Pod, Facebook, the Europeans Podcast, and yeah, that's it. <laughs> Oh, that ended suddenly. Um, don't miss next week's episode. We think it's really important listening. We will see you then. This week's episode was produced by Katie and Wojciech Oleksiak. We are a part of the Are We Europe audio family. Check out their other audio offerings at areweeurope.eu forward slash audio dash family. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.